Hello, everybody. This is Alex Steed, one of the co-hosts of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Sarah uh, will join a little bit later in the episode. She's not involved in this introduction, this go. Uh, she's on a mini retreat, which is super lovely for Sarah. We wish her the best in her retreating. <laughs> Today, though, we are joined by Emily Edwards, who is the host, uh, mastermind, uh, executive producer, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, of Fuckboys of Literature. And we are talking about Dead Poet Society. We thought that that might be an appropriate mashup. It worked so, so nicely. So I look forward to diving into that. Before we begin, you should know... You Are Good is made possible, thanks in part to you, by way of your support on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Uh, thanks so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We have bonus episodes there on a somewhat regular basis, usually about twice a month. Our latest post is available to everyone. It's not audio. It's not a, a conversation or a podcast. It's a, a bunch of notes that our friend, the wonderful author, Laura Lippman, sent to us about our hairspray episode. And Laura, I call the first first lady of Baltimore, even though it's not technically true. Thanks so much to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video and content production company based in Maine, though does work throughout these here United States. Thank you so much to Knack Factory. All right. What do we have to say about this splendid movie. First of all, I can't believe that this is the first time we've done a Robin Williams movie. We were a podcast about dads for a very long time called uh, Why Are Dads? And now we're a podcast more broadly about feelings. And I can't imagine a person who represents aspirational dadhood and feelings <laughs> more than Robin Williams does. I can't believe this is our first Robin Williams episode. And we thought that Emily, who has this podcast, Fuckboys of Literature, would be a great guest for this. So it all worked out wonderfully. Fuckboys of Literature is a Patreon-only podcast, uh, and you can find it at fuckboysoflit, B-O-I-S, fuckboysoflit.com. Emily was a fantastic guest. We are grateful that Emily was involved. As we have available every week, there will be an episode-inspired playlist in our show notes, a link to that. You can check out what songs come to mind when we think about this movie, about this conversation, about our feelings about these things. And uh, yeah, just a quick note, we talk about suicide more than once in this episode. It's a theme in the movie. It's obviously something that is relevant in talking about Robin Williams. There are several mentions of sexual assault and rape in this episode, in particular in the context of my high school experience, not my personal high school experience, but my experience at my high school and things that happened at my high school. So I just want you to know about those things in case you need to uh, make some listening decisions accordingly. If that's a thing that is triggering for you, I want you to know about it. I want you to act accordingly. Uh, you know, if you have to duck out of this one, there's plenty of other great episodes of You Are Good for you to check out. Uh, take care of yourselves. We, uh, we love you guys a whole lot. We want you to know what you're getting into. Otherwise, it's a highly vibrant <laughs> and alive conversation about Robin Williams and boys who love poetry. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. So our specialty is feelings. Uh-huh. We got a big one today. Oh, yes. 
<laughs> a big autumnal feeling, stepping on a crispy leaf as it walks toward us. <laughs> you have a history with this movie, which we'll get into. I'm very excited to talk about it. I think it's, as I texted to you, I think it's very relevant in our critical race theory, quote, debates that are happening right now. Mm. But we have a special guest in the form of Emily Edwards. Hello. How are you? Good, Emily. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I, I've, I'm so excited to chat with you about this. Tell us about you and, and what you make and do. Sure. Uh, I'm Emily Edwards. Hello. Uh, I make a podcast that is right in line with this particular discussion because um, I make a podcast called Fuckboys of Literature, which is ostensibly a comedy podcast about books and the most toxic people in literature. Mm. We cover everybody from Lord Byron to Ernest Hemingway to all sorts of different fictional characters uh, and just talking about how the Western canon has kind of screwed up our entire society. Amazing. Have you talked about strangers on a train? Not yet. Oh. <laughs> Before we go down that hole, Sarah, can you let the listener know what Dead Poet Society is and more or less what happens in it? Alex, no, I cannot. Dead Poet Society can only speak for itself. Okay, but yes, I'll try. <laughs> so as someone who once went to college preparatory school, in a place where working yourself to the point of psychic death was treated as a virtue to be cultivated for a life well lived. This movie <laughs> lives very, very deeply in my heart, deep near the very center, the magma light center of my heart. And it is about teen boys who go to a very repressive prep school where suddenly their English teacher is Robin Williams. And as many people point out, he never has to do the boring part of teaching. He's never like, boys, this is the passive voice, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Although I maintain you can make teaching what the passive voice is and why to avoid it a fun class. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, he uses English class as an excuse to teach them to carpe diem. Seize the day, boys, you're going to die. Like, maybe don't be bankers. <laughs> And so they respond to this adorably by going to a cave and reading poetry to each other. It's beautiful. And like this expires other acts of sedition, like being in plays and pulling pranks and talking to girls near the very end when things are really escalating and putting lipstick on your face, mm. which is the best one. There's just this idea of like, oh my goodness, like we had this wonderful school before and this horrible man has become like a cancer on our wonderful school. And then the administration has an excuse to oust Mr. Keating. Mike is Michael Eisner once would have ousted an executive at Disney <laughs> after one of his students, the one who successfully auditions to be in a Shakespeare play in town, his horrible, terrible father played by Kurt Wood Smith basically withdraws him from school, exerts what appears to be this like terrifying emotional power, this like emotional chokehold he has over his son. And is like, you're going to military academy tomorrow. We'll stamp all of this feelings out of you. It'll kill you. Upward mobility is, is what you must do to satisfy my emotional needs. And his son commits suicide. Then this is the excuse that the school needs to fire Mr. Keating and 
They're like, we've successfully eradicated the feelings. And in the final scene, the boys show that, like, no, they have not eradicated the feelings. Feelings are now at large, and they stand on their desks. <laughs> the end. <laughs> There's a feelings epidemic. Exactly. <laughs> the feelings are airborne. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, when we were talking about potential movies, we went through a lot of different things. But why is this close to your heart? I mean, obviously, it's in the, the context of stuff that you cover. But why is this movie big for you? I unironically love this movie. Yeah, I probably first saw it when I was like 14 and a freshman in high school, public high school. That's the perfect time to first see it, in my opinion. <laughs> and I definitely had those teachers. I mean, I'm from Connecticut. And so like I had those teachers who were like, damn, I wish I was actually teaching at a private school instead of like this inner city public school. Mm. And then they were just kind of like, we're going to be those teachers. We're going to be Mr. Keating. And I ate it up with a oh, spoon. Yeah. I love this movie. And so I was just like, I was the weird writer kid, you know, like it was the only thing I could do. And it was great to have, you know, I love Robin Williams with a fiery passion. I just thought he was like the greatest thing in the mm -hmm. world. Also, it is rife with incredibly cute teenage boys. So oh, yeah. that was fantastic for me. Oh, my God. It's brilliant. I, I hope someone at Disney was like, all right, we just need like eight cute boys and we'll get our key demographic of girls who will rent it 30 times. Yes, exactly. Three of them who are like more or less identical, which I love. Yes. There's three boys that are, look exactly the same and they're just so cute. You can look past it. Symmetrical people <laughs> all look like each other. I mean, do you get any cuter than Robert Sean Leonard in 1989 next to Ethan Hawke? No, I mean, honestly. Um, you do, and it's called Josh Charles in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, they're all so adorable. And, you know, and these are teenage boys who, like, I was in high school around the era of, like, American Pie. Mm. So, like, all high school boys were just like, horny assholes. Yeah. An erection with little feet. Exactly. So I was just like, what is the peak escapism from this hellscape? And it was Dead Poet Society. So I just watched it all the time. Yes. Yeah, I straight up don't care what critics have to say about this movie. And I don't know what they have to say about this movie. I don't know if this is like one of those ones that got I think that I think that there was probably some revision on people's like, insane enthusiasm from the mid 80s about this movie. No, there has been like there have been kind of big articles in the past 10 years that have been like, eh, it's not a good movie for these reasons. And they're like, they're fairly good arguments. But also I'm like, whatever. 100% fuck those people. Like, I don't have <laughs> any appetite for that. Like, this movie is perfect. <laughs> yeah, and you know why I agree with that? You know what this movie is that is a thing that I think doesn't change over time? It is 100% earnest and sincere. Yes, that's why. That's exactly why I feel that way. There is no more earnest film I can think of. Second by second, the earnestness is just unbelievable. To deliver this message in a way that's going to land with a lot of people who this message is for, which is like 14-year-old kids who are super into writing and then people who used to be 14-year-old kids super into writing or expression in one way or another. Or who just maybe would like Shakespeare read to them in a funny voice or to have... Sure. I mean, like one of the key scenes in this movie to me, Ethan Hawke has not written a poem and he has this kind of artistic standoff with Mr. Keating, who says something like, you know, he, he believes that everything inside him is is bad and not worth talking about. You know, and, and Mr. Keating's just kind of like, no, everybody's got something to say, like, please stop having this beaten out yeah. of you. And 
like Todd's never heard that before, ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's the youngest brother and he sees himself as like a degraded Xerox, if such technology exists at the time, a degraded hectograph of his older brothers who have all been like ideal Welton men. And we really begin to understand that the Welton ideal is just like no feelings ever, except school spirit. It opens with a parade of the values of the school, which are basically like conformity, fascism. <laughs> nice sweaters. And bagpipes indoors. So, in oh, I love it. I love that. I love that so much. And I think that the thing that it speaks to the most, you know, someone on Twitter was saying it's like, well, they had the poetry rock. It's like, I don't care. Because this movie's not about poetry. It's not about poetry. It's about human beings having emotions. Being young and having emotions and realizing that your emotions probably don't really mesh with what the expectations are around you. And it's so funny hearing that Sarah is saying you went to a college preparatory school. Emily, you saying you went to school in Connecticut. I went to a school where like every teacher fucked a student. So the fascism <laughs> occurred in different iterations, but there was always for people like us, at least one teacher that snuck through <laughs> and helped us not want to fucking kill ourselves, which we see happen in this movie. Yes. God bless the teachers. Can we just say that? Like, especially after yeah. the past year and a half, like, oh, my Lord in heaven. <laughs> yeah. It's about teaching young, straight, ostensibly white male boys of privilege mm -hmm that you can emote. Well, they're going to be in, in control of the world pretty soon, so they really need to know that. Yeah. You know, I have no patience for cynicism anymore, despite my constant uh, personality um, <laughs> in, in media. And it's just, you know, to see people on Twitter, especially like drag this movie, I'm like, no, the whole point is that these boys don't have to be cynical and angry at all times. And it's just like, thank God they had Mr. Keating. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. They had a shepherd. They had a captain. Can we talk about some of the, the dad figures in this film? <laughs> Not yes. the daddies, but the dads. Because yeah. like, okay, we have Mr. Keating. We have Mr. McAllister. We have mm -hmm. Norman Lloyd, who plays, oh my goodness, the headmaster who loves to paddle boys. He sure does. Like a dazed and confused character. Norman Lloyd lived to be 106 or 107. And I was thinking maybe he like absorbed some of the spirits of the, the young actors he paddled <laughs> in the movie when they made it. And then we have Kurtwood Smith playing Neil's dad. Kurtwood Smith has played, I would say, variations of this character many times, which is the like the stupid iron fist of the American patriarch. It's iron and it's mm -hmm. dumb. And... This is just the most terrifying iteration because I just feel like I would love to see like in horror brackets a face off between Kurtwood Smith and Dead Poet Society and Terry O'Quinn and the stepfather. <laughs> That's all I was thinking of the entire time is I was like, it's too bad there isn't the Kurtwood Smith cut of the stepfather. <laughs> well, can you talk? I mean, but like, I think that would be such a great face off because Terry O'Quinn is the stepfather. He just kills you, you know, with a, a knife or whatever. He just comes, he kills you and Kurtwood Smith he kills you from the inside yeah absolutely I feel terrible when I watch this movie because there is a part of and this is so hard this is bad mm -hmm. this is a bad thing that I feel but mm -hmm. I feel a one second of like yeah well fuck you when he walks in and realizes his son is dead which is like a horrible thing to feel but like how can you not because you're like you right. did everything but like 
do it yourself. But this time I watched it realizing that, you know, with a, probably maybe a touch more empathy than I normally do, which is mm-hmm. these kids learn to be in touch with their feelings ideally before they go out and start ruling the world. Mm-hmm. Because the cautionary tale is you could turn into Kurtwood Smith. Like, yes, the cautionary tale is that he, what a sad man that man oh, is. Yes. Like that man failed the test so hard he has to live with having driven his son to suicide. Mm-hmm. And he kills you not like the stepfather real quick. He kills you over time. For being a product of both when this movie came out and when it's set, I don't think he would consider himself a loser still. He's still got successful sons. He's still a success. Mm. I think he just had the one son. He he made the mistake of being poor and not having a bunch of dumb kids. Yeah, I think that that's the whole thing is they've got it all riding on uh, on him. So economically, poor old Neil. Gotcha. Okay. I was under the assumption that there were brothers. This is why you have heirs and spares, you know, like with the Trump family. I'm one of six, so I'm free, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They're just like, and Alex is somewhere. I was always going to be better than some of them and worse than some of them. You know, that's just how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) For average. So did you feel empowered by this movie, Emily? Like, wh- what were your feelings when you were experiencing it for- outside of obviously the cuteness and, and all of that? I mean, I'm the only person in my family who doesn't have a professional degree. Oh. I mean, my sister's a lawyer. My brother's an engineer. My dad was an engineer. My sister, my mother was like a social worker. And I'm just kind of like, hi, I'm your stupid writer. You know, <laughs> so it's just like you're the Nawanda. <laughs> yeah, I'm the absolute black sheep of my family when it comes to stuff like that. And so it was always really nice to be reminded that there is a family outside of your actual family. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, like my my family's like fine, but like you need a special place and you know your warm little creative cocoon. And so to kind of just be reminded or told at a very early age that like there are other freaks and weirdos like you um, out there and you're just going to have to search for them is an incredibly reassuring thing to be told when you're 14 and like, oh, the clinical depression starting to kick in like now and you feel weird mm-hmm. and no one like, you know, and it's just like, I went to a very large public high school. I think my graduating class was like almost 600 kids. So it was just like, there always was a community. Thankfully, it wasn't small and there was no like way of being ostracized because when you're around 3000 students, like there's always going to be weirdos for you. But um. I can only imagine that if you are in a much smaller community, like, or in a closed community and a purposefully closed community, this movie makes you feel like, all right, I just got to buckle down and get through these last couple of Mm. years and then I can go off and do something else and find my people. And that is, I I think it's incredibly important. And again, not cynical, which is Mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole point. Is that true, Sarah? Which part? The part of you are in a community like this. Oh, right? yeah. Like school wise. Like, is it? Oh, yeah. My overriding feeling was like, I got to get out of here. I'm being worked to death. Yeah. And then I did. And like, I have never achieved less than when I was in high school. Did that feel great? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> were you a person sort of in those circumstances, Sarah, that realized that was absurd? Or were you like, I'm pretty sure this is absurd. I hope I'm right. I knew it was absurd, but I just also, yeah, well, no, yeah, you're right. It was the latter category. It was, I, I'm pretty sure this is, is absurd, but I also feel pressured to like do more 
got to do more, got to be more. And I was like a super low achiever by the standards of everyone around me because I was like, and I got C's sometimes. And I like was very driven as a writer. I spent like all my spare time writing. I wasn't like off socializing or anything at all. But I also wasn't like an, a, a compulsive A getter in school. And I wasn't really capable of A's because I was like, had unmedicated ADHD, which is really pretty hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. But you know, I didn't try that hard in a lot of circumstances either because I was like, ah, this is, I like figured out the sort of minimum to try and get. And I got like a lot of B's. I was like a 2.9 GPA, I still remember. Because mm. I remember I was like, maybe I can get it to a three. And it was like, nah, you can't. <laughs> but I also like wrote plays and I did extracurricular theater stuff. And I did after school fencing. That's like the single preppiest fact about me. <laughs> Prep school is like a very weird and very particular place. And like they are places out of time in an interesting way because the climate is really decided by the people in charge. And like one of the reasons you send a child to prep school is so that they can have the same kind of childhood you had against all other laws of physics. Mm. How do fuckboys play into this, Emily? (sighs) You know, it's one of those shifting definitions that kind of gets revamped every single time we record a show. Mm. Uh, It's hard because fuckboys of literature specifically, they have a tendency to capitalize on the rules of society where they see how the the permissions you get as a as a white guy in literary circles open things up for you. So all the poets that they're reading, we've like discussed on the show because you know the the romantics mm-hmm. especially are these like heady hedonistic dudes who have really crappy, you know, interpersonal relationships. They're like have feelings, boy have feelings all over country girls. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, these poor, unassuming suburbanite girls who are just kind of like, I, I just want to marry the football player. Please leave me alone. <laughs> but, you know, one of the characters in this this movie that really, like, burns my toast is the guy who does the cheap tricks in the middle of assembly and stuff like that. Oh, Charlie. No wonder. First of all, the late 80s racism. You know, when he's pulling those stunts with reckless abandon and not considering how it's going to affect all of his friends Mm -hmm. who may not be legacies, you know, and at some point Neil even says to Mr. Keating, like, I'm not Charlie's family. We don't come from money. Like, I can't do things like this. Mm -hmm. Charlie has like the true I don't give a fuckitude of someone who does know that they have enough in the bank to get bailed out infinity (laughs) infinity times and he's probably going to like kill someone in a reckless boating incident at some point. Oh yeah, he's going to Ted Kennedy someone. Like he's terrible. Yes, there you go. Great bangs though. There's something to be said for confidence in teenage boys where it's just like very, very appealing. But at the same time, you're like, too much. That's almost all they have going for them. Yeah. You want Neil levels of confidence, not Charlie levels of confidence. Right. Well, Neil levels of confidence are like good at public speaking. Not the reckless boating incident thing. You don't really see that in his future. Yeah. 
Neil knows he's a good friend. Like, there's no scene in the movie that makes me sob more than when he finds Todd mm. upset that he gets the desk set two years yeah. in a row. Oh, yeah. And it's his only job to just try to make Todd feel like he's not forgotten, even though Todd is absolutely, like, middle management at the advertising firm, like, forgotten. But he reminds him in such a nice way, which is like, you'll probably get it again next year, <laughs> which is such a fantastic punchline. It's so sweet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about father figures, Neil is the father figure that they all deserve. Mm. Neil is a deeply good and caring mm. person. And he was before Keating got there. He's the one who's setting up study groups. He's the one who's checking in with everybody on moving day. Neil is a deeply good person. And that's like one of the most horrifically tragic things about this is not necessarily that he dies by suicide, but that he could have been a, a great changing force amongst the peers of his his era, and he doesn't get the chance to be. Mm -hmm. And I, everything everyone has said is right about the Charlie we see who takes the call in the middle of assembly. Mm -hmm. like From God. From God. <laughs> from God. <laughs> like Rich Maga is a bunch of Charlies, right? It's a bunch of Charlies who never met a Mr. Keating who said... God, I don't think Charlie is that bad. <laughs> oh, he could be. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, Charlie unchecked forever. Okay, Charlie unchecked forever. All right. <laughs> the big, like, beautiful aspirational difference or sort of fantastic difference we see here is there was a grown-up who, like, saw him in his interest at his mm. level and was like, what you did is not great for the reasons it's not great. But then yeah. also humored it at the end by saying, like, if you did the joke like this, it would have been this. And right. I thought that that was a great illustration. Yeah. of how someone I'd hate if they went unchecked for another couple of years. And he heard it. It seemed like he heard it. And also he starts off as just sort of a general rebel who just wants to sort of be a shithead about everything. Yeah. And Mr. Keating's like, what if you were a shithead for like important things? <laughs> for reading poetry. Yes. Be a shithead for good. And pushing your fellow kids to have feelings. What about that, Charlie? Yeah, he's just such a perfect foil to the redhead kid, Cameron, yeah, yeah. who like sells everybody out and refuses to stand at the end of the movie. He's a fink. <laughs> uh, you know, Cameron is just a MAGA person now. Like he's just kind of like, I have my money. I have my straight A's. Everybody likes mm. me. And how dare you like try to upend the society that gave me power? He is such a monster. Mm. Yeah. All these kids would be, would have been born in about 1942, I think. So oh, wow. they would be yeah. approaching 80 today, <laughs> which is just astounding. On par with Trump voters. <laughs> yep, very true. But I love, again, how the movie's about poetry, but not at all poetry, because the payoff at the end is when they're explaining to the headmaster. I mean, the significance also of him being back is like he used to teach in that classroom. Mr. Nolan. Mr. Nolan. He used to teach there. And then now he has to be back because his near and do well, you know, Keating fucked everything up. But I love that the punchline there is that they used to jump around in the poetry book. They would read the romantics and some stuff mm. after the Civil War. And then he asks, what about the realists? Yeah. Yeah. And like, we never got to that. And I yeah. love that so much. It's a it's it's beautiful. Again, very on the nose. This this place is a 14 year old in me in a big way. Like fight this is the fight club of literature. Yes. Fuck you, Mr. <laughs> Nolan. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear about uh the romantics and like who gets featured in this movie and what what do you think that's about? 
the the poets that they are reading are mostly romantics. They never get to like, you know, the the guys who are writing in the 1920s and like the modernists and stuff like mm. that. But I think a lot of the poetry that they are reading in this movie and when, especially when they're in the cave at night mm-hmm. and it's all boys and Mr. Keating is a threat and it really pulls in the fact that there is a huge LGBT subject mm-hmm. to this movie and that is one of the things that is freaking mm-hmm. out the school so mm-hmm. much is that they have you know surely they've had discussions about this in the past but Mr. Keating who doesn't have a live-in girlfriend or a wife mm-hmm. and has all of these private meetings with these teenage boys in their reading Byron and other like bisexual or sexually fluid poets and mm-hmm. the you know cave at night mm-hmm. and it, it it's so glaring when you know about the people that they're reading and what context they're reading it in and uh it's got to be freaking weird to the headmasters in the 1950s well and i'm sure the headmasters are like well when i was a boy reading poetry in a cave we all you know <laughs> touch tips <laughs> <laughs> the queer not even undertones the queer tones overtones so, yeah <laughs> Somewhere between tones and overtones are fantastic. I think Neil probably being up top. Neil's playing Puck. Yeah. He has no love interest. I mean, you know, textually, he doesn't have a love interest. They haven't written a girl for him. They're like, yes, look at that relationship with a girl over there. And we're done. I love it. Also, if you look at a queer read, like Neil's love interest is getting the fuck out of there. Yeah. So he can do his thing, which is... Getting away from Kurt Wood Smith. Yeah, rightfully so. And the theater. Yeah. Doing a play that is essentially a sex farce. Having a threesome with Marlon Brando and Eartha Kitt, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not like Midsummer Night's Dream where he's playing Puck is like not a sexually liberated play. Like everybody's fucking in the woods. That's the entire play. It's That's fantastic. the play. <laughs> so just his outfit alone. I mean, he looks he looks so good. I love him so much. I don't know. It, you know, as someone who really deeply, deeply loved Robin Williams, like as a kid, especially. And now going back, I, I, this was the first Robin Williams movie that I watched since he died. Mm. Oh, wow. So to like jump back into watching him in this movie in such a way was probably half the reason why I'm sobbing my eyes out. Mm. He's so incredibly earnest in this and that you can tell that he actually means the things that he's saying and he's not just kind of like up there shooting the shit for a paycheck. Like it's really, really stunning his performance in this and how much he seems to actually care about saying these lines meaningfully. And I think it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. The text is so on the nose to the tragedy of Robin Williams end too. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. the the beautiful hearted thespian Mm. who inspires everybody who is like kind of the den leader to all of these kids takes his own life. Mm -hmm. And Somehow this feelings podcast about movies has never covered a Robin Williams movie. And like, it's too big a feeling. I am very small and have weak arms. The role that he played to a lot of people for a long, long, long time, loving uncle or aspirational dad Mm -hmm. or just heart, like a heart in human form was so substantial. Yeah. In my personal experience, he was an it's going to be all right figure Mm -hmm. repeatedly. Like, Mrs. Doubtfire never really leaves you, dear. She's just on TV now. Right. 
And like, you don't stop being a family, even though you're divorced. Like I watched Mrs. Doubtfire recently and I was just like, Jesus Christ, like how many kids and and moms needed to hear told directly to them, like, you don't stop being a family because you're divorced. Get divorced. It's good for you. You're screaming at each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, this is how the love will be able to happen is if you're not trying to be married. <laughs> Like, that was huge. No one else was saying that in the early 90s. I agree. In the context of Robin Williams being in it's every, everything's going to be all right character, representative of that, both like on screen and off, I think for a lot of people, fairly or unfairly, based on sort of like the standards we hold people in the public eye mm-hmm. to and the, the lift we ask them to do, even though they're not necessarily uh, asking to do it. But this movie stings so hard because like we think up to the night of the play until we realized Neil was lying about what happened in the conversation with his father. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams, his character, Mr. Keating, tells him essentially, just go and be yourself. Tell him everything you need to tell him. Everything's going to be all right. I know, I know, I know. And Neil comes back and says, essentially suggests that that's what happened, which gives him the satisfaction of believing that. And everything is not going to be all right. No. But like when Kurtwood Smith is shuffling Neil off to the car and like won't let anybody talk to him, I think you can see in Mr. Keating slash Robin Williams face that he's like, oh, no, I just signed this kid's fate. This is bad. Something terrible is going to happen. (sighs) And, you know, and all the boys, because they're they're idiot teenage boys. They're just like, man, this is great. I'm so proud of you. And Mr. Keating's just like, Neil is lost to us. And you can see him just kind of be like, I ruined this kid's Mm. life and I never thought this could happen. Yeah. Another moment of just like springing waterworks up my eyes of just seeing like an adult realize how he affected a kid for the negative is uh, I couldn't imagine that pain like as a teacher or like an adult in a a kid's Mm. life. Like that's horrible. I don't know what he could have done. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what as a teacher he could have done outside of just outside of say like walk on eggshells around your father for the rest of your life. He would have to like abduct him or tell him to run away and hop on a freight train. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the horrible part is, is like the best advice you could have given would be like, shut up and take it until you're 18 and then run away mm. as fast as humanly possible and then cut all ties with your family, which is like not good advice, but... Sometimes it's good advice. In so many cases, that's been the only answer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Seeing this movie again as an adult was just an absolutely mind-boggling experience. Mm. How so? I don't have kids and I've never wanted to be a teacher. I'm just putting that out there. But like to put yourself more in Mr. Keating's shoes rather than the kids who have like your whole life ahead of you. But to be a teacher that's responsible for partially responsible for raising these kids, Mm -hmm. like their parents aren't around. They're in boarding school. You are a a parent Mm -hmm. in addition to being a teacher when your kid, when the kids are at boarding school to only have them for a set period of time and to have that much influence over kids who you again have no influence over because their parents can remove them from the the sphere of your influence at any time. Mm-hmm. The futility in that must be absolutely crushing sometimes, especially when you have someone as promising as Neil or even as promising as Todd, who could be a brilliant, you know, emotionally fulfilled person, but he may not ever have the courage to do that outside of your classroom. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like Mr. Keating has this affinity with Neil and really with like all of these well, not all of these, but like the sort of dead poets group of the teenage boys. Because I also like how there's a ton of kids in the class that are like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
But with the core group, I feel like he has this affinity with them and this love for working with teens because he himself just feels a lot in the way that a teen does. And it's such a precarious balance because he's trying to liberate these kids so they don't become Kurtwood Smith. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he realizes in that moment so many things like he realizes maybe to some extent that he was naive to believe the things that Neil said. He believes at the very least the things that Neil told him were not true. And he's like reverse engineering sort of like what that ultimately means. And, you know, he's trying to liberate these kids from ever having to become that, but then also balance knowing that they have to face that in one way or another. And that's what we see in his conversation with Charlie after Charlie's stunt is basically there's a time and a place. And then in the conversation with Neil, when Neil comes over to his office and says, he says essentially like, how can you do this? How can you teach here? Mm -hmm. And Keating has the perspective to know that he might not like everything around the situation, mm -hmm. but he has a passion for teaching and he's identified where exactly the passion is and what he needs to do in order to do that. And when you're a kid, you're dangerously devoid of that context in ways that are beautiful, like kids stand on desks to make statements to say, fuck you to the headmaster. And in ways that are reckless, like if I can't do my thing, I'm going to die. And to me, what this movie speaks to is this thing where like a parent doesn't have real power over your life the way that they're implying they do but you feel like they do and you feel like they will forever because mm -hmm. that's how it's always been to this point i think partly because your brain hasn't developed in this direction enough yet to just sort of imagine potential other futures i don't mean to give kurtwood smith too much credit mm. i'm imagining your the ages that you were talking about earlier and who was what when and i imagine he was like 25 in 1929 yeah People who went through the depression are like, you don't know it, but I'm doing everything I can to save your ass because someday the shit's going to hit the fan and it's going to be horrendous and actors aren't going to survive. You got to saw <laughs> off as many legs as you can and collect the dollar bills and put them in a coffee can. <laughs> yeah, like I, on FBL Well, we've been discussing like a lot of like modernists this season because the modernists are just so horrible, such terrible human mm -hmm. beings. But it, it's so interesting to juxtapose like people who were born in the interwar years mm. with anybody who was born after World War mm. II. Whereas like if you were born in the interwar years, that means your dad was in World War One, and you're growing up through the depression mm. and then have to serve in World War II. You, it's like the worst time in like American history to be born. It was just Great a point. gutting and there's no therapy. So like if you're born <laughs> in the 1920s and 30s, you are just screwed from the get go. I feel terrible. And if you get VD, they're going to like inject strychnine in directly into your dick or whatever. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a horrible time to be born. And that's Kurtwood Smith in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he wears it. And he's that's just like he looks like a person struggling with that in a big way. With strychnine dick. It's yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like Robin Williams had like. 20 Robin Williams at his best moments like mm -hmm. this on one end of it and then Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting is like this character but older at kind of their greatest dad moments yeah like this and you know I don't know if he was nominated for an Oscar for this one or if it was um Good Morning Vietnam and, oh, yeah. you know and those are like his three really big dramatic oh my god roles and they're all of the same character vein of being thrust into this horrible situation 
and and trying to corral the innocent bystanders out of it mm. and he just does it so incredibly well so much of his comedy changed after he stopped doing drugs and his whole emotional timbre changed after he went through rehab and and continued to stay clean and i just think that he knew that being the zany guy the zany uncle was like his bread and butter mm. but then when he got to do roles like this man he just let it rip and it's just so beautiful to watch him him do parts like this i mean this is an opinion i have so maybe not everyone agrees but i think that there are professions where if you get someone who does a role that is like not an actor but like some adjacent ish profession and they need to act they tend to do pretty well and i think comedian is one of those jobs where like comedians tend to be able to act like at least enough and obviously robin williams you know, is is so much more than that. But well, Robin Williams went to Juilliard. He was a trained right. formal actor, so like at least he had that. But like his professors were also like, "This is not the place for you. Get out." <laughs> um, so he did like leave. Thank goodness. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like if you look at uh, Jamie Fox, who was mm-hmm. a stand-up hmm. comedian and then a rapper and then played Ray Charles phenomenally hmm. well, uh, I think stand-ups especially are deeply emotional people in a way that people do not expect Mm -hmm. and they have no fear Mm. because if you have to get up in front of an audience for 10 minutes and try to make them laugh it's the hardest thing in the world so what's gonna happen you're gonna have to do another take like Mm -hmm. uh, just let it go and it right and you're just in front of like some crew and you're just like whatever (laughs) yeah like the boom guy doesn't care (laughs) (laughs) like acting can be about many different things but it feels like maybe the most important of all those things is just like the ability to show up as a complete human being and maybe to like need to be able to do it through performance because that unlocks some deeper ability to do it in you I think that that's right I mean I think you know I think Mark Marin does this particularly well and has mm-hmm. and has over time Mark Marin played Mark Marin until a couple of years ago and then played Mark Marin a little lighter and then figured out how to play a slightly different person and you can tell it's like cuz he's digging into some whatever he's got going on which seems big and sad cuz I feel like the best stand up comedy I've seen is kind of like being like look at this wound on my torso that won't heal isn't it weird and and you're like wow i also have a weird wound but it never occurred to me to show it to people like this exactly so the thing that really struck me about this movie is we're talking about critical race theory in the public eye we sure are oh my lord it's not we're talking about it. It's that the Republican Party has found a way to just yell about a thing and make some accomplishments. They keep finding new labels to apply to their primal scream. And this is one of them. That's precisely it. I, I didn't expect to watch this movie about a bunch of white boys reading poetry together and go, oh, this is actually a really beautiful statement about what is being aspired towards oh, here. Oh, I get what you're saying. But quote critical race theory in one way or another or being being against it is just a way to not acknowledge like segregation. Mm. Like it's like, don't look at us having been responsible for this in one way or another. And it's to create a conformity of thought. But we see that it crushes the soul of one of these kids and kills one of these kids. And this is what is openly being advocated for now. Of course, it's in a prep school and here. But now like this is a standard that's very rapidly being pushed for as a 
political ideology. Yeah. No, I mean, so much of uh, the current political uh, butting of heads is just fully derives from uh, the definition of whiteness and who is allowed to have privilege. Mm -hmm. So to see it enacted in a all boys private school where everybody's wearing the same vest <laughs> to to watch that sort of power struggle amongst the people who are then going to become Republican senators. Right, right. It's a little bit like a peek behind the curtain of watching who is going to get power because society has decided that they're conformist enough and white enough and rich enough and perfect enough and predictable enough. Yeah. I mean, if you're Cameron at 17, you're for sure a Republican senator by 40 Absolutely. or in, a senator for anyone because you're sociopathic enough in, in the context of sort of the cartoon of sociopathy mm -hmm. to do whatever it takes to become a politician. Yeah. Are you a Bush or a Kennedy? You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Cameron then, Cameron now, Cameron forever. Again, it's so on the nose. This came out in the mid 80s. This is like a statement against Reagan in one way or another. It's not surprising that like it hits it hits now in the way that it does. But like, yeah, conformity sucks. Late 80s. They had to wait for him to leave before they dared <laughs> release it. <laughs> Uh, you know, and the fact that it's set in the 50s, too, where you, you, people love to think that we're, air quotes, beyond this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we are so not. It's just intrinsically part of American and British and French and Western society that they're built exclusively on the power of the chosen few. Mm. And, you know, that's the reason why they're not teaching any other cultures poetry in this poetry mm. class as well. You know, uh, it, it is simply just British romantics over and over and over again. Some Gilgamesh would have been good. <laughs> Anything? Like... <laughs> Who are your Keatings? Okay, mine was my 11th grade English teacher, Mr. Strieber, who... It was phenomenal and wrote me a letter to get into college that included the line, she made me a better teacher. Aww. I owe him so much. It's, it's beyond words. That's lovely. Sarah? Everyone who valued my writing along the way, which was a lot of different teachers, I'm very lucky to have that be true. But like the first person who comes to mind as my Mr. Keating was my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Reventus. Who was just like this very joyful person who was like, life is bigger than being nine. And I was like, oh, my God, thank heavens. <laughs> and also she had a dog that she brought in on the last day of school. And they did a trick where she would like point her fingers at him and go bang and he would fall down dead. And it was oh, great. That is great. His name was Ramon. Isn't that great? After the Ramones. She was a Ramones fan. That's wonderful. Oh, and she was really tall. She was like 6'3". So she was like a really tall woman who seemed extremely happy. And I was like, it's going to be okay. She was my it's going to be okay person because I was already tall when I was nine. Our Keating ended up with many other teachers sleeping with students. <laughs> no. And so, yeah, the guy who was like the prototypical Keating ended up sleeping with like a 15 year old girl so ra raping i mean i don't want to say sleeping yeah. that was the thing and so miss bragan took over for him i think she got away with this specifically because of this situation but scrapped the entire male curriculum and only taught women nice to just one class and i was lucky to be in that class wow that's fantastic she became the insurgent <laughs> keating she she was wonderful but yeah miss miss bragan was a hero 
You know what I think, and this is going to sound like a bit, but I really believe this. If teacher salaries weren't so low, there wouldn't be so many perverts in teaching. Because (laughs) think about it. If you're not getting paid anything, you either have to genuinely care and love about educating kids, or you have to be a pervert. There has to be an extra incentive. So there you go. Just pay teachers more and there will be fewer perverts and you'll be better able to screen for them because you can have a bigger hiring pool at the end. Do you think we can seed this into QAnon? (laughs) Like, oh, like get QAnon to become obsessed with upping teacher pay? Yeah, we got to get those teacher pays up to like 150, 200 because we need to rid the perverts out. I bet someone more savvy than us could do that. So savvy (laughs) people, go infiltrate some QAnon. I'm tired. I have to take a nap. You do it. Thank you. Totally. They'll find a way. Infiltrate you QAnons while you may. So, okay. So Kurtwood Smith, is the father in this movie. Who do we believe to be the daddy? Oh my goodness. The daddy is Chris, who has to be the only girl in this entire movie, aside from Melora Walters for one second. Love Melora Walters in this. And also, I think Lara Flynn Boyle for one second. They cut her scene. She's like in the background. Oh. Oh, they like she's she got the high billing in this. For, well, probably retro- retrospectively or something. No, I think she was fully expecting to be like a huge subplot. What was her subplot supposed to be? She played like Chet Danbury's little sister or something like that. And she was supposed to have a crush on Josh Charles and like make a play for him. And her agent was probably like, uh, no, she's she was on Twin Peaks at the time, I think. So they were probably just like, uh, she was like, I already have the clothes for this role. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. How about you just pay her and give her credit? And she's like barely in the movie at all. She's like in the background of the party scene. Yeah, so weird. We should absolutely mention, yes, Josh Charles non-consensually kisses a girl while she's maybe asleep at a party, passed out. She's she's unconscious. Asleep at a party is something you just got to read as unconscious unless you have like <laughs> some kind of proof that she's taken a little disco nap. That, that absolutely <laughs> happens, and he absolutely also gets his ass handed to him. Yes. Not yeah. for the right reasons. This is like what happened in Blue Valentine, where a guy gets punished for inappropriate behavior for an inappropriate reason. And you're like, ah. <laughs> you're like, should I cheer this on? It's satisfying, but not great. I guess if you have to kiss someone when they're unconscious, which like, that's never true. But if it were, the forehead is the best. Maybe the hand hand is good he doesn't like cop a feel or anything he just like chastely bends over and smooches her on the forehead he's like you're so pure yeah so the point is that chris has to deal chris noel first name first name first name last name (laughs) has to deal with the freight of being the only girl in this whole movie the whole time and it just seems very stressful and she has to be one of these like 80s movie dream girls I feel like Dakota Johnson is playing in this mold today. Like you watch the Fifty Shades movies and you're like, she is the only good thing about any of this. She's mm. carrying like 200% of her burden as a as a leading character. And like Alexandra Powers plays Chris and I feel like she is given one of the great thankless roles of the decade and she does amazing work with it. And I think she's incredible. Yeah. I, I mean, credit for the fact that the writers also he, he's pervy but he's not like the full pervy that he could be towards this girl he's motivated by like an overabundance of sincerity and a confusion about seeing the boundaries 
And I feel like the thing that I can say that I believe about people of that age is that like, you can get older and learn a lot about life and be like, I should never, why? And hopefully maybe that relationship worked out. And one day he turns to her and he's like, Chris, I barked into your classroom and read a poem to you. That was awful. And she's like, oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> People admitting being wrong and saying they're sorry is hard to come by these days. That's the thing we most want. <laughs> no one's going to never make a mistake. The problem with that gesture as we're talking about it now is because it's like a part of this like wriggling mass, which is the like grand gestures by men who then expect something. Yeah. I think we've had this kind of cultural unpacking in the past decade or so of the way that characters like this teach young men to like basically use grand gestures to like emotionally strong arm women into doing what they want them to and that women kind of learn those cues as well but all that said I grew up watching this movie and like making a mistake and then immediately apologizing and going to see a play with somebody is like it works for me apology accepted she reads him the riot act and she you know when she shows up in the the vestibule of the school he's like you can't be here and she's like but you can come into yeah. my you know safe sphere and that's somehow okay mm -hmm. and you know when you bring class into it of just like he he's saying to her you know like you're not allowed in this upper echelon mm -hmm. private school but she's like but you can barge into public school and humiliate me mm -hmm. in front of my poor friends like how dare you mm -hmm. and he gets it to a certain degree mm -hmm. and it, it it shows some rapid maturation that only happens in Hollywood but it, you know at least it's essential and it happens and she does stand up for herself mm. I do feel like people do make surprising breakthroughs in that way but like maybe not at such convenient times <laughs> <laughs> who's your daddy uh Emily but then Mr. Keating like I, and also let me be honest with you I have had a crush on Robin Williams since I was a mm -hmm. child. So like I, Mr. Keating throughout, mm -hmm. without a doubt. So yeah, absolutely. This, I think the film is yelling at us that Mr. Keating is the daddy. I think that that's what the film is, the, the film is telling us. So yeah, totally. That's why he has to teach because if he had a human child, then he would lose all of his many, many children. My very on the nose answer is, is Neil. Mm. He's the den daddy. He gets it all going again, which is really, truly lovely. He just his enthusiasm for everything is so nice. And I think that just sadly, that enthusiasm comes from the fact that he knows he can't have these things. So he wants it for people who it's more and it's it's mm. more within their reach, which is really beautiful. That scene again with like the decorative desk thing that they throw off the roof. Oh, God, the the scene where Todd Ethan Hawke is saying your dad's not going to let you do this and Neil just says can you let me be excited about this for a minute because yeah. he knows that inevitably it's going to go away how he handles knowing that he can't have these things and he's trying to facilitate it for other people is both beautiful and tragic and I, I, I appreciated it much more this time than before yeah and he's such a cheerleader for everybody and you just feel like this I mean Alex I feel like you're kind of a Neil person Every friend group needs the person to whom it is very important that people be friends. <laughs> Thank you. That's super nice. <laughs> Emily, this has been fantastic. How do we find you? Uh, you can find me mostly on Twitter at Fuckboys of Lit. That's B-O-I-S. Or on my personal Twitter, which is Ms. Emily Edwards. Uh, 
podcast is actually Patreon only, so you can find us on patreon.com slash fuckboysoflit, and that's about it. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that is this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Emily Edwards. Check out Fuckboys of Lit. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about this episode, talking about Robin Williams with us. Thanks so much to Carolyn Kendrick for doing everything, you know, for putting these episodes together, for making them sound great. We appreciate you, Carolyn. Carolyn often records songs for each of these episodes, and we're putting out our first compilation of those songs very, very soon. So stay tuned for that. You can find Carolyn's work at carolynkendrick.com. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for putting together the beats that show up in each of these episodes. That's it for this episode. I hope you have a wonderful time. Be kind to yourself out there. It is... uh it's wild (laughs) to say the least. All right. Take good care.